The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals being interviewed and do not necessarily represent those of the Greater Winter Haven Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to It's Happening in the Haven. I'm your host, Brianna Price. Each episode, I get the privilege to speak to the amazing people taking Winter Haven and its surrounding Central Florida area to the next level. We're future-focused, celebrating our entrepreneurial history and leveraging it for our bright future ahead. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of our sponsors who believe in advancing commerce and community here in Winter Haven. Hello, I'm Greg Littleton, President and CEO of Citizens Bank and Trust. Since 1920, Citizens Bank and Trust has been a stable and reliable banking partner in our community. Now in our third generation of family ownership, you can count on the team at Citizens Bank and Trust to be here for all of your banking needs. From secure checking and personal savings plans to a wide range of personal, mortgage, and business loans, we have the right financial solutions for you. We also offer a highly experienced group of trust and private banking professionals who can work with you to develop your long-term financial goals. If you're looking for a community bank with a heart for people and outstanding customer service, I invite you to visit citizens-bank.com to find the office location nearest you and give us a try. At Citizens Bank and Trust, we're proud to be your bank. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender, Investment Advisory Products and Services, not FDIC insured, not a deposit, not guaranteed, may lose value. Today's episode is a walk down memory lane. You guessed it, it's time for a best of episode. While every single podcast episode is special, here are some fan favorites. So let's talk a little bit about that. So, um, you know, one of the things that, that I admire about you is that you say you own what happened in your life. So you, um, you know, made choices in your teenage years um, that um, landed you in prison. And, and what, what was that experience like? What was that experience like being incarcerated? Okay. So first of all, the, the choice that I made that landed me in prison was mm-hmm. one count of grand theft. So when people hear prison, they hear, oh, this is a murderer. This is a person that went out on robbery. Uh, It was grand theft. It was it was checks. And Mm -hmm. so one check that was not mine carries three charges. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things. So when you leave, so you go to Polk County Jail. Mm -hmm. And from there you go to a reception center, which is called Lowell in Ocala, Florida. Mm -hmm. And that's where they send, they have two of them. They have one down south. And for the people that live North Florida, from here on up they Mm -hmm. go to ocala Mm -hmm. so you get all these people some are murderers some are whatever you know Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they come to this one melting pot and then they dissect you so they they take you through a series of testing and physical examinations and based on your charge then they they put you in a place in prison where you may work beside the road so when you pass by those guys that you see here with the blue vests on right, i mean right. the blue they're prisoners mm-hmm. and so what that means is our custody it means we've committed a crime but that our crime is not what they call a violent crime and so then you can go and work so we the the, the state is paid to use the inmates to do some of the labor in the in the cities or in the county mm-hmm. so that was in excel was something totally out of the area for me because I've never worked outside, you know, mm-hmm. no more than just pilling around. So I did uh, various jobs in the in the institution. But one of my jobs was I had a warden 
and I won't name her name because of confidentiality, but mm-hmm. I had a warden warden who put me in her office, and I don't know what she saw in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't look like me. We weren't of the same background, but she saw something in me, and she allowed me to work in her office, and I worked in her office, and at that position, I got paid $75 a month, Katie, mm. and that $75 a month was supposed to take care of whatever needs I may have, whether it's sanitary napkins, because I don't know how candid you want me to be Mm. but when you go to prison you don't get those things you get those things are not provided for you you have to if you don't have family katie that can provide those things for you the state is not mandated to uh, supply those if they have them supply you with feminine products correct if they have them they will issue you them based on what they have Mm. but if they don't have them then it's your responsibility Mm. so can you see how that right you know that puts a strain on on a family member so a Mm. lot of people that are free. They have a, a perception that, oh, when they go to prison, they're sleeping in bed all day, they're watching TV, mm-hmm. and they're just living the life. Well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. You have assigned jobs when you get to the State Department of Corrections. You may work in the cafeteria. You may, may work in the library, sorry. Mm-hmm. You may work in the chapel. You may, you may work outside grounds. Mm-hmm. I was blessed that the warden picked me to go in her office and do paperwork and assist on some things where I received compensation. Mm-hmm. That's not the norm. Mm-hmm. And those jobs are hard to come by and so what what did you kind of learn from that process um in terms of of having that particular duty and um you know tell me a little bit about how that had an impact on you being able to to have that position versus some of the other positions well having that position katie it put me in uh, a different category because i was giving more given i'm sorry given more uh responsibilities I was able to um, pick pick different things that I would like to do. Mm-hmm. So by me being allowed to pick those things, for one, I was able to go to the faith-based prison. They had it in River, Riverview mm-hmm. where our governor did a faith-based prison. It's not there anymore, but he did a pilot program. And because I worked for the warden, she was able to ask me, Katina, do you want to go? Mm-hmm. So where I had been in Ocala, I was able to come to Riverview. And at Riverview, in at that facility, I was able to establish all the religious programs that came in there. So really? it, yes, even though I was incarcerated, I was able to uh, get different um, pastors and leaders and ministers from the community mm-hmm. to come in and render services to us. I remember one one year for Black History Month, she allowed my daughter which is 28 at, at this point, mm-hmm. but she was a, a, a teenager. She allowed her to come in and do a Maya Angelou poem for the entire prison, women's mm-hmm. prison. So that position afforded me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten in the general population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like allowed you to um, uh, grow as a leader, <laughs> you know, in terms of being able to take on that responsibility um, and develop, like you said, develop those programs um, as they went through. When you were caught and convicted of your of the crime that you committed, um, and then spent that time um, um, in jail, what got you through that time period? What were your thoughts in terms of what the rest of your life was going to be like, and and, and how did you? Because I I know you in the life that you're in right now. I know you as a just a firecracker, an entrepreneur, a go getter, um, you know all of that kind of stuff. But I, I can imagine um, that there are points where 
you wonder what's next. You wonder what's going to become. So uh, how did you make it through that uh, for five years, correct? You served for five years. How'd you make it through that time? Okay, so let me tell you how it first started. It started out with serious bouts of depression, Mm. and that's being realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, Katie, I have a daughter that's 18. When I went to prison, she was only six weeks old. I had my six-weeks checkup in the Lowell Women's Institution. So for for the first part, it was depression. It was, God, how did I end up here? Because I came from a religious background. Mm-hmm. So I attended church. I had I thought I had a relationship with God. So because of my crime, I felt that I shouldn't be there. I mean, I should get punished, but I shouldn't be in prison for five years. So it was depression at first, mm-hmm. uh, mixed with denial. And then at some point, uh, there were different services that were coming in I got in my head that this is where I am. You did do the crime, although you didn't think you'd end up here. You did the crime. So now let's, what do we do after this? I can remember, and I still have the Bible. I showed my daughter one day, Katie, where I wrote in the Bible, uh, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it, that I can't come back here. Mm-hmm. This is just not going to be my life. So I, I envisioned actually not coming back to Polk County. Mm-hmm. I said there is no way I could make it in Polk County with all these people that know me. They know the the the, the prison me mm-hmm. before prison, so they're not going to give me a chance. And um, I talked to my oldest daughter at the time, and she said her words are what motivated me. She said, Mom, it's not our fault. We didn't do it. You want to move us from what we know, and we don't want that. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, Katina, however you have to do it, you got to fight and you got to come back to Polk County and you got to make something of yourself if for no one else but your children to mm-hmm. see that you can do it. Mm-hmm. So um, when your time was up and you you came back to, to Polk County, talk about that experience. Talk about the experience of kind of reintegrating yourself in your family and your community. And, and what was that like? So first on my way, on my day that my, my, my best friends, my best friend picked me up. So I transitioned to a work release. Mm-hmm. And so from the prison, I went to a work release over in St. Pete, which, which is the Goodwill. And so on the top floor, they had state inmates. On the bottom floor, they had federal inmates. And we had jobs. So I rode a bicycle, Katie, the Gandy Boulevard. Um, to Mac- to McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's in the drive-thru mm. and I rode my bicycle every morning. So I had already kind of been transitioning, mm-hmm. you know, getting my mindset right. Um, as I was signing my release papers, the counselor told me, Katie, that um, most people return within three years. And I had this plan and I was fired up, Katie. I was ready to go. And mm-hmm. as I was signing, that's what she told me. Oh, wow. And I said, you know what? If I don't do anything else, I'm going to make her a liar. She <laughs> won't see me back in three years. And thank the Lord, it's been 13 years mm-hmm. and I've not returned. But um, coming back home was different for me because I had been away from my, my, I left my oldest daughter when she was nine and my infant when she was six weeks. So what I did, honestly, is I went to Kendallin and Associates and I got therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's okay to say. But, uh, but that's, absolutely, that's okay That's to my say. truth. Yeah. And so I went to uh, Kendallin Associates and I sought, sought the help of a mental health counselor. Mm-hmm. And what she worked on is reuniting the family. That was her specialty. Mm-hmm. And so I went for several appointments, several times a week to transition. Um, Katie, I got so many no's at, at, at 
works at, at employment offers. You know, mm-hmm. I would go for a job and we'd like your personality, but. Right, right. Yeah. So I just thought, you know what? I, I had a I, I had my pastor, uh, Ronnie Clark from Hearst Chapel. He was amazing. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I needed the other piece. So I had the spiritual and he's a mental health counselor. But I figured he had all the stuff with the church. So I went to someone who didn't know mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. and I laid it all on the line and said, hey, this is where we are as a family. But no doubt about it. I love my kids and I want to be there for them. Yeah. And so we worked on step we steps. We used tools to get us back reunited. Yeah. Well, I just want to stop you there for a minute to say, you know, you asked, is it okay to talk about that? I, I think more people need to talk about that it is okay to need help. And what that decision that you made was a decision that you made for your children, but also for yourself. And you were making it for your children, but it's just so important. And I've had other guests that have talked about the low points in their life and the, the 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 comments I get is it's so helpful for people to hear about people going out and seeking help when they hit those low points in their life mm-hmm. because we all think we can handle it and I, I don't want to say not knocking the fellows but women especially women especially feel like I got this I can't show a vulnerability I have to be there for my kids I have mm-hmm. to appear strong I have to and it's um, that's even worse I feel like mm-hmm. because you just bury and bury and bury and you aren't the whole person in the uh, that you that your kids need, and so I commend you. And I think more people need to talk about. You know, I I saw a counselor after my divorce, and it was um, similar to someone who didn't know anything about me, which I also think helps sometimes too, because there's no preconceived judgment. And right. um, and they, uh, you know, one thing I learned in that process is that the the people that are going through what you're going through with you. Um, they are also going through a process. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit harder for them to, to disconnect um, because they care about you right. so much right. and they are grieving or, or experiencing the pain that you are also experiencing. But by going with someone who is truly an independent third party, right. they can see you more, if you mm-hmm. will, see mm-hmm. you more um, for what you are. So, so I, I applaud and commend you. Uh, for bringing that up and talking about that because that's extremely important. So, so you you worked really hard. It sounds like on 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 making yourself your whole self the best you could be once you got out of that. But you kept hitting walls when it came to the employment side right. of it. And you know we've um, even as a chamber of commerce we've talked about uh, the, the catchphrase is ban the box. You know mm-hmm. ban that checkbox that says that you've been convicted of a crime until mm-hmm. you're able to get in and talk to somebody right. and I- I- explain that. Um, so, so by, by getting those no's that we love you, Katina, but you know, we just can't because Mm -hmm. of, um, is that what ignited you to kind of start to think about being an entrepreneur or how did you, how'd you get to that point where you said, I want to start my own business? Well, to be transparent, I was an entrepreneur before prison. Mm -hmm. I had a daycare Mm -hmm. right off of Havendale Mm -hmm. and it was on Xerxes Avenue. And, um, when I went in, the DCF sent me papers. They served me in in prison, saying that you'll never be allowed to do this again. You have, you know, you've been convicted. You're in prison, and you uh, actually were convicted while you were child care in the in the field. Mm-hmm. So when I got out, there was a, a a pastor in Lake Wales, Pastor Cheryl Larkin, who had a who has currently has a facility and had one at that time, and she allowed me to come and do paperwork. Mm-hmm. So being true to herself, she submitted the paperwork. They kick it back, and Katie, believe it or not, they came in with the police 
and they told her that she had to let me go Hmm. and um I said you know enough is enough I then uh, there was a a hearing office over in Lakeland on South Florida, DCF's main building. I I went there that that same day and I said, listen, I don't have a violent crime. What is it? And they said, the only way you can do it is if if you file for an exemption. And I said, what is an exemption? And they said, you have to go through this. And the way the lady gave me on the paper, Katie, just looking at the paper, I said, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. Went home and thought about it. And I said, oh, yes, I'm doing it. I didn't like the feeling of how that felt being escorted out of that property. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, started the process, gathered my witnesses, and met a super nice lady, uh, Beatrice Blanco, who is in DCF. She's in the Orlando Regional Office. She had me come and explain everything to her, had my witnesses come, and she gave me an exemption. Mm-hmm. I said, well, if she's letting me work in it, Katie, I'm not stopping. I'm mm-hmm. going back to ownership. Mm-hmm. And thus the process began. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started out in Babson Park. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. It's I started out in Babson Park with one location. Actually um, provided child care services to a gentleman who owned a building in Frostproof. And then he allowed me to go in his building. So I had two locations. The location in Babson Park was a storefront and the, the owner wasn't willing to sell. And I ended up of getting the opportunity to go to Eagle Lake where I have the old first union building. So I'm located in Eagle Lake, still in Frostproof. And the rest, I call it her story. It's not history, it's her story, which is my story, <laughs> where now I have two locations, Miss Kay's Enrichment Center, phase one and phase two, operating in Eagle Lake with a capacity of 68 and in Frostproof with a capacity of 45. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. So um, you have just recently taken over the reins of really a foundational business in the Winter Haven community. You're the third generation family, which you didn't know you were going to be family when you moved here, but you became family. Um, So tell our listeners a little bit about the history of Jack Brown Seaplane Base. Sure. Um, So a lot of this can be found on the website, so I don't want to, you know, sound like I'm, I'm just reading here, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. just a, a little synopsis. Um, Jack Brown Seaplane Base was founded by Jack Brown as my, uh, uh, my wife's grandfather mm-hmm. um, in 1963. Uh, and actually, it's a little known uh, fact is Jack Brown was the first FBO, which is a fixed base operator, um, at the Winter Haven Airport. So mm-hmm. it actually started on wheels and, and, and land airplanes and selling fuel. And, and hangar space at the Winter Haven Airport in 1960. Now, was he ex-military? <clears throat> Did, is that where he got that experience? That's or? correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, he actually was a, a pilot, uh, a naval aviator in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Okay. And flew oh, all wow. kinds of uh, different fighter aircraft mm-hmm. and a lot of the, uh, the large flying boats, the seaplanes mm-hmm. in the Pacific. And he had actually been a commercial pilot at the uh, start of World War II and had a lot of flying experience. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the higher brass and generals that were having to get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them requested Jack Brown because he had so much more experience. Right. And it wasn't somebody that got that pushed too. through, uh, <laughs> basic you know, training basic training an and, and minimal flight time before <laughs> taking controls of one of these, right. these airplanes. Uh, so, yeah, that was most of his, uh, his flying in the Pacific was, mm-hmm. uh, was flying generals and commanders around. Now, was he from Winter Haven? Is that how he ended back here afterwards? Or? He actually, um, he is originally from West Virginia, uh, but settled in this area because after the war, um, he became a kind of a freelance 
um, or civilian flight instructor, but still on contract with the military. Mm-hmm. It was instructing out of Bartow. Oh, right. And yeah. so he instructed at Bartow for the military for many years mm-hmm. and got this opportunity to uh, buy this FBO at Winter Haven, get that going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had Brown's Flying Service at the time and operated for three years there um, until on a some trade deal, some business deal, got this J3 Cub, a little yellow fabric airplane on floats mm-hmm. on, on this trade-in. And um, that kind of... Took him back. Uh, I'm sure it had been many years since he had last been in the seaplane. But um, when he got this plane on trade, he had some friends saying, hey, I want to learn how to fly that. Right. Uh, so the location that we're at on Lake Jesse on the Chain of Lakes right now was all overgrown. And they just forced this airplane right through the grass and <laughs> launched it there, um, a little primitive, and mm-hmm. then started just doing seaplane rides, some instruction for friends. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the whole thing got started. And so is uh, that why your planes are still yellow? Is that like an homage to that first plane? Yeah. So we, we like keeping the, uh, you know, the fleet somewhat original looking. Right. Uh, so they got some upgraded engines for horsepower. Students aren't getting any smaller. But uh, <laughs> but it is like a snapshot of the 1930s and 40s. Yeah. yeah it's, it's always been the mainstay and the backbone of the fleet. And they're, they're simple and they put a big grin on your face. Uh, but we do try to replicate uh, the way they look back in 1939 to 47, like the years they were built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize the Winter Haven Airport had been around that long. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, I knew the Bartow Air Base obviously was, that was a training ground for World War II. Correct. A lot of pilots came through there. And um, you never realize, I've only been up in the air once. Um, over Winter Haven and one we of these small little, that. I know, I know <laughs> it was, uh, with a, a chamber member took me up and when I, we went to the hangar and he pulled his aircraft out by hand, I started getting <laughs> super nervous. I'm like, Ed, this plane is going to take me up in the air, but <laughs> you don't really realize till you get over. I mean, we flew out to kind of the Bach tower area and all of that. And he's like, Oh, we can't go any, um, closer. I was asking about CSX. Could we fly over CSX? Cause mm-hmm. I'd never seen that. He's like, well, we can't get too close there. Cause you get to the Bartow, um, the airspace. airspace there, mm-hmm. um, as you go over, but it is one of the most majestic and breathtaking experiences to take off from the winter Haven airport, especially at sunset and just see, you know, what is the cottage cheese of winter Haven yeah. or the Swiss, Swiss cheese of winter right. Haven with all of the lakes and everything like that. It, it's, it really is. The yeah. only thing better than taking off from winter Haven airport is taking off from the lake from the right water. next to it. <laughs> <laughs> I do really, really want to try that. That really is amazing. Um, and, and really something that sets winter Haven apart. So Brown seaplane base has become, well, in my mind, the greatest um, seaplane uh, training area frankly in the world but you get people from all over the place don't you we do in a pre-covid world we were getting 20 to 30 percent of our students and customers that were coming actually from from overseas Mm -hmm. from different countries um i mean seaplane flying is highly restricted uh for example europe Mm -hmm. uh they just put so much red tape that it's not feasible or practical to operate seaplanes so Mm. You know, people will, will come over here. It's cheaper for them to buy international tickets and stay for a week um, <laughs> and kind of scratch this itch that is seaplane flying. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been really neat. And we're starting to see now, uh, you know, travel restrictions lightening up some. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to get some of that international tap open back up. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, so you never went to Alaska then? Oh, I ended up did. I, I did, yes. Yeah. Um, so I ended up coming down and um, 
I worked for two years mm-hmm. at the seaplane base here in Winter Haven. Um, built a good resume up. So I ended up going up back to Alaska, uh, or initially to Alaska, instead of as a line guy, fueling planes, unloading, unloading, mm-hmm. uh, but instead as a pilot. And mm-hmm. uh, I was still loading and unloading airplanes, though. I found that out. Right, right. So. Yeah, you pretty much do everything, right? And you that's, do. that's what I found. And, you know, this is totally from watching the movies. Um, I can't even remember the one. It's Sandra Bullock and Ryan uh, Reynolds in one. But that seaplanes, I mean, there are a lot of seaplanes in Alaska, right? From To go to the different there are. islands. And so I, I was it's flying much more out, common. Of, out of Juneau, which is the mm-hmm. capital of Alaska. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's probably not much bigger than Winter Haven, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no roads in or out. So everything that gets into Juneau or the surrounding, um, you know, I'll call them villages or towns, mm-hmm. it, they either get... Uh, flown in or by ship or barge mm-hmm. uh, so the places that we were you know servicing by seaplanes uh, we were taking kids to the dentist we were taking people to go <laughs> grocery shopping you know you'd even be you know uh de- you know, delivering a fifteen hundred dollar hungry howie's pizza because of the, <laughs> the delivery the cost <laughs> yeah exactly uh, hey so you really wanted that you're, pizza. De- you're desperate uh in some of those areas for sure yeah uh, so but what it, was it was that really like neat. what was it like living in alaska uh it was you know, obviously a, a geographical culture shock for yeah. a, a, a floridian a flatlander i like to call myself mm-hmm. up there yeah um to an area where it's like a, it's basically a temperate rainforest. We got 13 feet of rain a year. There's no level ground. It went from, um, you know, sea level to 15,000 foot mountains. It was really beautiful and you, you couldn't take a bad picture and it was really special to be flying, uh, flying some of my favorite aircraft and looking at land that very few people have even walked. Um, So it, it was just really kind of the epitome of bush flying. It was, yeah. it was really neat. That's but poetic, Ben. That was beautiful. <laughs> I, you, I guess you must not be the first person to ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, being from the, the Sunshine State, right, of course, once the uh, the snows started uh, flurrying, most, se- most jobs up there are seasonal yeah. anyway. Um, so I went up there with the end in sight. I, it, was a, it was just a summer job. So I was out there for about five or six months. Mm-hmm. And um, so moved out there in April, came back in September, mm-hmm. and um, you know back to my my wife. I uh, proposed. So you were to married her. at that point. I was when you went not, to but okay. I, I did lock her down some because <laughs> I I did propose to her just four days before I left. Oh wow! Um, so of course I was you know excited to get back too. So we got married about a, a month after I returned from mm-hmm. Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really great. We had our um, engagement pictures up in Alaska and. Oh, yeah. Really neat. Oh, that's uh-huh. amazing. That's amazing. So he establishes the base in 1963. Then how does it kind of grow or become even well-known? Sure. So when Jack started the seaplane operation, uh, a brown seaplane base at the time, uh, he did not have some grand plans for turning it into the school that it is now. Um, Jack ran it for 10 to 12 years. Um it was in a, you know, it's kind of a, a real tragic uh, accident uh, where he passed away. Um, John Brown, my father-in-law, uh, was 28 at the time and was working on opening up kind of an, an auxiliary portion of the seaplane base up in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really consolidated and um, focused and homed in on Lake Jesse in this one location and kind of scraping together everything they could to kind of keep the doors open. Um, he began uh, taking over the check ride duties, uh, doing most of the instruction himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jack up until that point 
uh, was doing a lot of the instruction, the check rides, and having some other, you know, Navy and Air Force friends that would come in and help him out on the instructor side. Um, and John was really doing the same thing. He was he was double timing and just um, working extremely hard to provide for his mother, and um, and really that work ethic that he kind of took over the the reins with really got that momentum going and built it into the the destination that it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really founded um, on a really pretty basic principle: is you know have fun fly safe, you know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. Um, and no matter the size that we've been, you know, we've kind of grown and shrunk and grown over the years uh, based off of demand. Uh, but it's it's really been a, a neat thing looking over the history that there hasn't been leaps and bounds of, of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the customer experience that they get has remained constant. It's a really laid-back atmosphere with very high training standards. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why uh, people come from all over the country, all over the world to go through the, go through the training here. Mm-hmm. So we, we say we're the seaplane capital of the world because we just like to claim things like that. But uh, does it feel that way? I mean, I'm sure it does in your daily life because that's what you're doing all day long. Sure. So yeah. that's, of course, my, um, it's where my, my focus and attention mm-hmm. um, is put in the working hours. Um, as far as thinking of myself or, you know, kind of the nucleus of that capital, right? no, I can't really say I feel that way. Um, <laughs> I know the way, you know, customers talk when they come and they've, you know, oftentimes they've been waiting for many years. You know, most people are saying this is a bucket list sign. They've been looking forward to coming and doing this, uh, honestly, longer than I've been alive. Um, so <laughs> you don't say that to them, that <laughs> Typically Man, no. you've wanted this for 40 years. <laughs> well, I'm only 32. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, no, I can't really say that my day-to-day I'm thinking, hey, that we're, we're the capital. Um, yeah, I think keeping a, a humble attitude and, yeah. and keeping uh, you know, just keeping the, the nose to the grindstone, but mm-hmm. honestly looking for constant ways to improve, yeah. you know, not just the customer experience, but also internal operations and um, you know, keeping a good safety record. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. We'd like to welcome and thank Mahalik Auto Group for sponsoring Season 3 of our podcast. This family-owned and operated business was first founded in 1966 in Michigan by Ralph Mahalik Sr. The family opened Winter Haven Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram in 1991 and continued to expand in Polk County, now owning three additional dealerships, Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram at Posner Park and also in Lake Wales in addition to Alfa Romeo Fiat of Winter Haven. Not only are their teams dedicated to finding you the perfect vehicle, but they're also focused on building a strong relationship with the community and treating their buyers like family. Find your new ride in 2022 and learn more at www.lowpaymentkings.com. Well, and you're surrounded by a lot of people that have worked for the Parks and Rec Department for a very long time, which I think also speaks to the department. Absolutely. Is that there are a lot of people that have been there for years. And in fact, so many of our current um, administration executive team started in Parks and Rec. Donna Sheehan started in Parks and Rec. Um, She is, of course, our assistant to the city manager and public information officer. Deputy city manager T. Michael started in Parks and Rec. I mean, there's so many of the the team that have grown their way through the city, um, through the Parks and Rec department. 
um, and, and for our listeners, we joked about it being rigorous. Um, it was a multi-level interview process, yes. including, and this is what I love, and a lot of people don't know this, but um, uh, just recently, within the last several years, the city of Winter Haven has instituted a new interview process for any director level positions. And this includes not only are you meeting with who will be your bosses, so that administrative uh, group and the city manager, deputy city manager, et cetera, um, but you also meet with uh, people that would be reporting to you or in that kind of structure so that they have an opportunity to interview you. You're interviewed by a panel of your peers, of other directors, and then they put together these community panels. And I think there was, I was privileged enough to be on the interview panel for this position, but there were, what, six or seven other community people on that call? Right. All of those stakeholders that would benefit from building a relationship with you um, had the opportunity. I, I'm going to be from the positive, not not all of those stakeholders who will be the, 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 the ones knocking on your door all the time <laughs> asking for something. Um, but that's what I loved about it. And then one of the interview panel actually was an old uh, was an old coach of yours, yes. an old coach of yours, um, which he was just um, I'd never met him before. So just over Zoom, but a, a light of ener ball of energy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, but I love that the city of Winter Haven gets the stakeholders involved in that discussion because then we're all bought into the, the choice at that point and are ready to just swoop in and begin supporting uh, the person who gets that director level position to move forward. So it's almost giving a little bit of a leg up to the person that comes into the position because they've had an opportunity to, to um, you know, show themselves to those individuals that are on that call and, and really get vested in it. If I could, I just yeah. want to say something to that. You know, that I that was unlike any experience I've ever had. Uh, on top of the fact that it was Zoom mm -hmm. with multiple right. people, each panel, which you you don't give enough credit to how difficult that really can be and tiring, exhausting. And, yes, yeah. yes. So I want to give credit to the process, but you said a key word, and it's support, and that's something that I have felt tremendously since stepping foot onto property my very first day of work, mm -hmm. and that's from every single person that you mentioned in, in that selection process. It is the an environment where I don't feel like I can fail because I have so many people that are ready, like you said, to mm -hmm. swoop in and support and make connections and build bridges and and encourage those relationships to begin if I don't have the means or the, or the connection to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. And for that, I'm just so thankful because you never know what you're getting into. Right. You really don't. Mm -hmm. And you know what you're leaving, <laughs> right? but you don't know what you're getting into. And so I can definitely say that this, this community, this organization has done a fantastic job of making me feel like I was part of the team, part of the family mm -hmm. from day one. That's great. That's great to hear. So what do you believe, um, and whether you whether you answer this from the city's perspective or the Parks and Rec uh, Department's uh, perspective, but what do you believe are the greatest strengths, and then also what do you believe are the greatest challenges facing the city or the Parks and Rec Department? I'm going to choose, because I don't have enough knowledge to speak from for the city perspective, and mm -hmm. I'm probably naive to think that I ha have enough knowledge to speak <laughs> from the Parks and Rec <laughs> Department's perspective, but I'm going to give it a shot. I think that, I'm going to start with, with our challenges. I think that with the imminent growth that we're experiencing, not imminent, we are experiencing the growth now and mm -hmm. the imminent growth that, that's definitely ahead of us, it is tough for us to be able to try and prepare 
uh, as well as we can for that growth. I think that, you know, we're doing a fantastic job. I think that there are, I walked into this position with five capital projects happening. Uh, and that to me is a testament to this city's just tenacity in tackling mm-hmm. the, the problem of, of, not problem, but challenge of growth. Mm-hmm. That we're, we're sticking to the course of being able to provide quality leisure services areas, whether it be parks, whether it be, and then also the working t- directly with our public works department to make sure that the roadways are safe and that we have complete streets so that there's connectivity and so that people can get to and from one place to another safely, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's to enjoy a public space or just go to work. Mm-hmm. And I think that being able to kind of keep pace with the growth that we're experiencing is one of the biggest challenges that we all face. And I know that we do in our in our department as well with with staffing and and, um, you know, just and welcoming. Also, COVID kind of throws the, the curveball. Right. But getting ready and just kind of making the, the ways and the needs that we need to to start to hopefully see some normalcy soon. Right. You know, as we as we kind of ease back into to post um Life the after new COVID. new normal, right? <laughs> the new new normal, right? The post vaccine. Hey, let's hopefully get back to because you know people want to be. It's summertime. People yeah. want to be outside. They want to enjoy spaces. They want to do cool things. They want to be in the boats and be on the water and and you know mm-hmm. be in our spaces. So, I think that those are the challenges that we have to work really hard at staying the course with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the biggest benefits or the strengths that we have are people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the team that I came into is a dream. I, I, everybody has is so committed to what they're doing. They they see the bigger picture for the most part, which is tough for some of your your staff that are day to day, face to face with mm-hmm. the with you know the the community. But our people are great. Mm-hmm. They just continue to uh, you know sometimes with COVID we we have quarantines, we have challenges like that. But they just do whatever it takes to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And I'm so proud to, to be a part of that kind of mentality yeah. and to help advocate uh, for not only our residents, but for our staff as well. But it's definitely the people. Yeah, that's that's been a characteristic that's always been so refreshing to me. Uh, and, and I work with a lot of different city departments in our job, which I love about this because I feel like I've gotten to know people you know, from, like you said, the face-to-face um, community-facing roles um, to the more strategic planners when it comes to right. different stuff, but in every department, whether that be utilities or public works or parks and rec. But the parks and rec department, we obviously work with a lot because of the events um, right. uh, angle of it. And there has not been one, truly I can say this, there has not been one parks and rec employee that I've come across in my seven years of being in this job that has not gone above and beyond to make sure that um, what our event is or what we're trying to communicate out or anything along those lines isn't doesn't go across flawlessly and I mean you can really to be able to say that but it it truly is the there are people it it never feels like even if truly in the back of their head they're like but it never feels like I'm dealing with someone who is is just doing a job it always feels like I'm working with somebody who is very proud of the job that they are doing and are invested in the job for the city of Winter Haven um, for the whole community. So you you are very lucky. You are very lucky to be coming into that team, Julia. I definitely am. <laughs> so um, my last question for you. Um, if you had to outline your top goals for the next year, what would they be? To spend time uh, very 
intentional time with my crew. Mm. I really want to get out in the field and learn and go out there with landscape crews and go out with the athletics guys and be in the library and go out to the cemetery and see what their day-to-day looks like and learn more about the field house and you know just just be in and amongst the the area getting to know what our business is Mm -hmm. and because I think for me to be the kind of leader that I want to be I've got to know the intricacies to the extent that I can so that I can be the best advocate for Mm -hmm. what we need to do a better job for our citizens Mm -hmm. because that's why we're here to serve and if if one of my teammates needs something to do their job better then I want to learn why we need it and how we can get it so that we can do a better job right um, so that for me is is my top priority to get a better understanding you know it's it's gonna be <laughs> there's no way that I can catch up with 35 years of institutional knowledge but I'm just hacking away at it one day at a time yeah to build those relationships it's also important for me to continue to get to know the community uh, I've done uh, some work already to be able to create those connections, but I have a lot of work left to do to get to know our, our youth ath- athletic leagues and the coaches and the presidents of those leagues and really be able to connect and see real time things happening in our spaces. And so for me, it's it's the building the knowledge, but also building those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I. We're, we're parks and recreation. I want everybody to be able to ha- enjoy their job. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the really cool things about working in parks and rec is that, you know, we get to serve people every day, but we get to do it in a fun way for most of us. Right. You know, you may not say that in the cemetery, but <laughs> we're making a difference. Yeah. And I think that that can be such a broad term, but uh, one of my mentors, I heard him say, Um, just recently, hey, go out there and make a difference today. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about the the business itself because, you know, many locals drive by it all the time. They know about it. They, you know, they see the products. You know, for me, it's a... I'm making a Winter Haven-themed basket for the holidays, and you make sure you put that stuff in there, or I get really nerdy at grocery stores when I see your product in the grocery (laughs) store, and I'm like, look, look, it's right here. Um, But talk a little bit about your business in terms of, um, you know, you do online sales, you did distribution. I mean, how is that all broken up? And I I guess I should rewind a little bit for people that may not be familiar with you. What are the products that come out of Davidson of Dundee? We'll start there. Sure. Um, You know, we started out, it was uh, citrus candies. Mm -hmm. we use the tangerine juice, uh, honey bell, orange, uh, lemon, and key lime. So it was mainly a, a whole of a citrus deal. And we made this, the citrus candies, which is like a like a soft uh, gel-type candy. Mm-hmm. But it's not like a true gummy with um, uh, with characteristics that stick to your teeth. And right. None of that. It's a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's using the, the real citrus juices in them. So it, uh, it, it tastes like you're biting into a, an mm-hmm. orange. Or and do you still that have groves bell. that you're using your we own did, product? We or? do, we okay. do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've we've expanded beyond the citrus candy, mm-hmm. so uh, we do uh, many many chocolates, mm-hmm. uh, of course, with uh, coconut patties and uh, oh, yeah. log rolls, and then we, um, you know, do uh, marmalades and jellies, and mm-hmm. uh, we've got over a hundred and I think it's hundred twenty four varieties of marmalades and jellies, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, from orange marmalade to like a raspberry jalapeno to guava jelly, uh, you know, uh, honey bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots and lots of flavors that, that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the candies, too, um, I think we're about 68 flavors on the candies and wow. different chocolates mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and even things that aren't citrus related, like, uh, you know, peanut brittles, uh, mm-hmm. chocolate peanut brittles. Um, 
uh, and again, we do the coconut patties uh, mm -hmm. ourselves, uh, pecan log rolls, you know, uh, everything in-house. Everything. And old-fashioned way, you yeah. know. It's, 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 yeah, it's definitely old school. Now, we're bringing in uh, about 200,000 pounds of sugar a year, you know, so we're, wow. we're rolling with it. Um, mm -hmm. But it is, um, oh, gosh, like, um, well, the Food Network uh, came in, and they've done a few shows on us. But I remember uh, one of them, the first one, they said, this is so amazingly delicious and low-tech. Uh, <laughs> I, is that a compliment? I guess that, yeah. Is that good? Is that a good thing? Yeah, the low-tech part. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. it is because it, it means that you know exactly what ingredients yeah. are going into your things. I mean, it, it, truly, um, there is something to it being a little old-fashioned, you know, <laughs> when it goes into it. Um, so do you have someone on staff or a department that are kind of your creative team that come up with, like, the different flavor combinations? Like, do you have a chef, a head chef on staff? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, a lot of the original flavors uh, my, my parents came up with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of neat. Um, other ones, I, I do have to credit uh, my wife, Susan. Yeah, with, with uh, you know, like, gosh, she would would come up with an item and I was like oh yeah okay it sounds okay mm -hmm. yeah, I guess you know whatever <laughs> and then we would go ahead and make it after some pressure and then boom it's like okay we sold out of those I'm like mm -hmm. wait a minute we had like two three hundred jars no they're gone okay yeah I guess you were wow. right dear people, of course people would tell me gosh Tom that was ingenious I'm like well yeah it was nothing it was no big deal that's why I'm here but yeah no no and she just came up with, with one here not too long ago that uh, is amazing it's a, a raspberry jalapeno oh yeah yeah wow. That sounds like it would be popular. I, I brought one for you. Oh, did you so really? So you'll have to try Ooh, that for yourself. I will try yes, that, yeah. Yes. So thank you. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, also, oh, this is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, we have um, some neat recipe books that, uh, that that my parents were using mm -hmm. that were from, and it's so bizarre, they're uh, from the 1890s and early 2000s. Really? Yeah, pre-World War One. It's so mm -hmm. so cool. And they're neat recipes because um, they're really simple ingredients. Um, you have to be careful how you're making them and mm -hmm. do exactly like it says, you know. Um but they taste so good. Oh, wow. So, yeah, such a neat way. Um, the recipes from, from back then, mm -hmm. just incredible. Yeah. I mean, we found those are so good, so tasty. You know, and, and things have come along in the years. Okay, like, um, let me give you an example. I think it was in the, gosh, I think it was the 60s. Uh, my father was telling me. Uh, they had come out with a, a thing that uh, was going to be wonderful. You know, um, the best sweetener, of course, is sugar. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, corn sweeteners work uh, pretty well for getting a matrix started. And that's that's the corn sweetener that's from corn itself, none of the weird stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it was in the 60s, uh, maybe early 70s, but whatever it was. I remember uh, my dad was telling me that um, he uh, had that offer. They brought in, uh, oh gosh, a number of uh, tanks and said, we're going to leave these here. Hook up to them and use them as, you, as, you know, mm -hmm. but when they're out, then we'll start setting up a deal and we'll we'll start charging you for them and that was supposed to be the greatest invention ever high fructose corn syrup oh. now now we know how terrible it <laughs> right, is right right yeah but back in the 60s you did not you yeah know? and this this was the attraction was it was twice as sweet as sugar mm -hmm. and uh, uh, sugar back then was quite expensive um, in the 60s and 70s it, it had run up as high as it is now mm -hmm. which is after all this crazy right supply, supply chain supply issues problems. yeah so so back then you have to think that was like three times more than it is now mm. so sugar was very a high price commodity um but i remember my father was telling me you know that was supposed to be the greatest thing ever he goes and we cooked with it he goes and it was the first few sample batches he goes they were disgusting 
They were terrible because the high fructose is so sweet and so right. powerful. It would be like, um, like say, well, say take, when you take strawberries and dip them in powdered sugar, mm -hmm. they explode. They're delicious. I mean, strawberry alone is good, but you right. put powdered sugar in there. Oh, man, that's yeah. good, right? Yeah. Well, this is one of my favorite describers. He said, imagine taking a bowl of strawberries and then pouring in a bottle of super, super strong Cairo syrup on it. It's no. Yeah. And then other problems happen. When you cooked it, it would turn dark. So and it changed the look of everything. So yeah. we found out from doing the experiments uh, before we knew anything about the health issues of it. Right. It wasn't going to work for us. And I remember my dad was going, look, the whole thing ab about what we do is you do the, use the very best ingredients that you can because everybody else uses the cheap stuff. Mm -hmm. But you have to stand out. And the only way you stand out is to make it really taste good. Right. Where people will remember you because he said, we're well, this is a mom and pop place. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to talk about you mm -hmm. unless you really go overboard. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so some of these ingredients that are the latest and greatest um, don't necessarily work yeah, for us. Yeah, it's back to basics. And, yeah. and that's where you go back to these recipe books from the 1800s and early 1900s that are just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, yeah, one bizarre example. Of course, you know, now you really stay away from it because it's you know, kind of a scary thing, that high fructose. Um, uh, and that's the, the the regular corn sweeteners are still like they were made, you know, mm -hmm. years and years ago. But when they added the uh, um, extra ingredients and processes, uh, they're a little different. Mm -hmm. um, it changed things. And so it's unfortunate that they even call it corn sweeteners. It's, yeah, it has a little it bit gives of gives it a bad rap. Gives yes, corn it does. a bad rap. <laughs> it, yeah, the corn gets a bad rap. Yeah, the regular corn syrup is still, it's you know, fine. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like sugar from corn. Yeah, the other one, the high fructose, is really bizarre. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, of course, now we're aware of other issues. But back then, it didn't taste good. Mm -hmm. didn't work in the candies. Um, it, it turned brown when it was heated. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, all those free, um, that tanker that was out back, uh, no charge. I remember that. said, so you can go ahead and pick that up and take it out of here. <laughs> Get it out of here. So present day, how are your sales broken up? Because you do online online sales, yes, you have uh -huh. retail sales, you have sales within your store yes. uh, itself, and then you said you also have contracts with other larger retails as, retailers yes, as well. Yes, um, the main thing for us is wholesale. Mm -hmm. So we, we sell product to people that have stores, uh, individual stores, chain stores. Right. Uh, we also sell to other companies that, that have their own catalogs. Um, and some with our, our our labels, and then some people have their own labels, you know, that we put on for them. Okay. So uh, wholesale is the biggest thing for us. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, we have a, in the retail location out on Highway 27. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, uh, online. Um, and, of course, I'll, that, that plug is Davidson of Dundee. Uh, dot com mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yes which uh, we, which is interesting because when we first did that like 20 years ago I think you could uh, look at three items or something and then and then call us on the internet oh yeah <laughs> so, that's come a long ways yes yes yeah that's pretty cool um, but yeah we're, we have the online deal mm -hmm. we have the wholesale again is the biggest thing mm -hmm. um, and then we have the the, the, the retail store uh, as well of course um, and we're we're uh, still shipping yeah all over the United States um, and um, on, on fresh fruit, we're shipping to U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, with the candies, it's it, and jellies and marmalades. Right now, it's mainly the U.S. Uh, now we've exported to um, you know Italy, France, um, uh, uh, French Canada areas from a wholesaler Quebec. perspective. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because we had to have the labels in both English and French for those. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys are so classy. I know. It's, it, it, it makes it yeah it makes it so so special. So official. <laughs> Same product. Um, yeah, and then and of all places, this is a bizarre one. We've actually sent um, a container to Iceland. Oh, places. really? That bizarre. Yeah. I didn't know there were that many people in, uh, what would that be? Uh, I don't know how you say Reykjavik. it. Reykjavik. Reykjavik, yes. Yes, yes. It's yeah. my parents' favorite vacation location. Yeah, I, I hear it's beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, I guess they just had a big volcano not long ago. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can't believe that they 
you must eat a lot of marmalade on, in Iceland. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I mean, and if it stays good, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're able to do it there. I'm sure they upcharge it like five times yeah, really. because <laughs> everything is expensive in Iceland. All their food <laughs> is very expensive. So, but, but yeah, so we're, we're shipping all over the United States. Yeah. Um, so and, we actually have yeah. listeners of this podcast all over the United States. I think right now we're up to like 42 states of people Me. where they listen to this podcast. So if someone is out of the area, what are some of the retail stores that they can find the your products in? You know, um, there in certain areas, mm-hmm. pro- all the way to California, in certain TJ Maxx Home Goods stores, you know, they have the uh, marmalades and jellies in, mm-hmm. um, and that's that, that's kind of cool. Um, but we do ship all over the U.S. and, mm-hmm. and when fruit we're doing U.S. and Canada, um, with Canada we did have a there's some issues that come up with marmalades to Canada. Where customs um, wants mm-hmm. to, you know, put a little tariff on it, mm-hmm. which makes it no fun. Oh yeah. So yeah. on fruit, there's no tariff because they don't grow it in mm-hmm. Canada. So. Right. <laughs> but, they, but they do make some marmalade in Canada, yeah. so I, in Canada, in confections rather. So that's you know the problem to candy mm-hmm. there. So there are tariffs that are added to it. So we've, we're we're trying to get that resolved, working with uh, uh, you know, customs to get that fixed. So, mm-hmm. but for now, yeah, we're doing um, the candies, marmalades, chocolates uh, all over the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we're uh, hoping to get back into Alaska and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, some contracts with UPS that, that we're trying to redo mm-hmm. uh, to get those, so they'll, they'll handle those as well. But continental U.S. is, uh, yeah, piece of cake. Easy. Do, are you all dealing with any supply chain issues right now within your business? <laughs> well, it's interesting. We've, uh, we've used the same jar. And mm-hmm. the marmalades and jellies, same jars for, uh, well, since like 66. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And uh, until this year, uh, they are completely unavailable. Um, so we had to go to a backup. Mm-hmm. style mm-hmm. Uh, now the interesting thing is we we didn't know how drastic that would be for the consumer that's used to seeing this jar for decades right now it's a totally different jar they're mm-hmm. like wait what ah, yeah because yeah. 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 it was a real unique jar yeah, yeah. Um, you could tell you know if you knew anything about it it was like okay that's Davidson's mm-hmm. um, yeah so it's a new jar but we uh, yeah still did that mess like with crazy. any of your um, automation or anything or the same you top know, where it fit know, on there it's fun it's so funny you say that because that's a very real concern mm-hmm. for us it's amazing. Everything uh, works fine. We did very little adjustments oh, on the good. conveyors mm-hmm. or the filler or the labeling machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I had to do very, very little work on that. So, yeah, we were lucky. But, yeah, we were told, and this is interesting, The uh, we had a, uh, several uh, truckloads of containers uh, that were coming over, and we were going to have those, gosh, I think it was the middle of August. Mm-hmm. And um, then it was, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, July, and then went to August and September. And I think by that time, then we started bringing our own trucks uh, with different class because mm. we figured we could have a problem. It might not make, her, make it here till 1st of November. Right. Yeah, well, now they're saying it could be after the new year. Wow. Yeah, so th- nobody has a clue. Colorectal cancer is more than 90% curable when detected early on. Advent Health is here to support you with tools for prevention all the way through to early detection. It's important to maintain a healthy lifestyle, track any unusual gastric symptoms that persist, and be aware of your risk factors. Still, the most effective tool is timely screenings. Due to an increase of diagnosis in younger patients, the screening age has been reduced from age 50 to age 45. Advent Health offers convenient and safe options to get screened. From colonoscopies to at-home testing, we've got you covered. Learn more at GetScreenedToday.com.
Thanks for listening to our best of episode. Be sure to tune in every week to It's Happening in the Haven, available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. To learn more about Winter Haven and the Chamber, visit winterhavenchamber.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We hope you've learned a little bit about our community today and even more about the people who are shaping its future. After all, no true community exists without the people who form it. Winter Haven. Some call it a haven. We call it home.